welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the show. This is Rick Roberts. Today, we've got an interview with Louis Ramey. You might know him from Comedy Central Presents, Live at Gotham, or even Last Comic Standing. Louis is a seasoned veteran with some good nuggets and some tips and a good perspective on what it's like many, many years into the business. Before that, quick couple of announcements here. Uh, Columbus, Indiana on April 9th. I'll be there Saturday at the Simmons Winery. It's kind of out in the country. So go to SimmonsWinery.com and check out location uh, or call for tickets. 812-343-9313. That's 812-343-9313. Simmons Winery in Columbus, Indiana. Saturday we have a show that starts off with a meal. Big old buffet meal, 6.30, and then I'll be performing as soon as you finish up your dessert. And we've added Sunday afternoon, Sunday, April 10th at 12.30, a big lunch buffet, and then the comedy show as well. It's going to be a clean comedy show. 30 bucks gets you the meal and the ticket. Can't beat that, and I'd like to meet you out there. So make plans if you're in that area to come on out and see me in Columbus, Indiana. Also, if you are a seasoned vet and you would like to possibly teach the School of Laughs live class. I'm looking at finding a few individuals who may want to teach that on my behalf with my support in places that I just physically can't be uh, throughout the year. I've got some interest from uh, the Branson, Missouri area already. I've got uh, some other interest from maybe Arizona. But I'm looking for a few people that have done this for a while. I do want you to be a a seasoned comedian to teach these classes. And uh, if you're interested in that at all, just shoot me a quick email or message me, and I can get you more information on that. It's something I've been looking forward to doing for a while, and I think the pieces are in place now to make that happen. So we'll find out. If you contact me, if there's enough interest, we'll get that going. And lastly, a quick iTunes review. As always, thank you so much for leaving a review. I appreciate them, and I always like to read them here on the show. This one comes in from Raylene56, says, A friend of mine recommended this podcast to me, and I've been listening nonstop for a few days now. I'm loving, loving all the information you're sharing. Thank you so much. My very first open mic is April 5th, and I'm stoked. How about that? Very good, Raylene. Thank you, and thank your friend for letting you know about the podcast, and that's what it's here for, to give you some insight and some tips as you begin your comedy journey, sometimes from folks that have been there and done that, like today's episode with Lewis Ramey. I'm going to get right back to the beginning. You started out in Atlanta at one of the hottest clubs ever, the Punchline, which is still rocking out. And we were talking last night, I didn't realize some of the guys that you were starting out at the same time with, you mentioned a competition in Nashville. Tell everybody who was on that bill in Nashville when you, when you did oh, that. Oh, uh, let's see. I think we got this. And what year it was. Oh, I, it must have been around 1986, 87. Uh-huh. Uh, I had been doing comedy for about two years, two and a half years. And uh, I did, uh, at the time, the big thing was comedy competitions. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Zanies Club had one where they gave away five grand for the best comic and the competition at the time were a bunch of young comics mm-hmm. including uh, Jeff Foxworthy, uh, Ronnie Bullard, uh, uh, who, who's the guy that uh, we were Henry just, Cho, in there? Henry Cho, Henry Cho. Killer Bees, uh, you remember Overton? Rick Overton? Uh, it's a black oh. guy named Overton, I can't remember 
I don't know. I know Rick. Knew, well, he was a young guy from Nashville, a uh, black guy, got called to go to L.A., uh, was the hottest thing in the area, got in a car accident. Ooh. Yeah. Like yeah. before he got out there? Before he got out there. Oh, oh it's, it's crushing to all of us. And uh, But it, it, at the time, I thought of comedy as a hobby. Right. And uh, I came in second on that competition and got a uh, full set of luggage and my first <laughs> working gig at Nashville at the Zanies. That was one of the prizes too, right? Yes, yes. So I just went, I, I got luggage. I'm, I'm a 19-year-old kid with luggage. I better start doing it. I'm going to go somewhere. <laughs> go somewhere. That, yeah. is, that is crazy. And that's a I know some of those guys. You know, Henry's a pretty good buddy of mine. Yeah. And it's, it's just funny how, you know, he came to my college when I was in college. Yeah. And, I, and even at that point, you know, we would go pick these guys up from the airport and they would do a killer one-hour show on campus. But I never, it never even dawned on me that I could quit school and go do comedy or that comedy was a real job. Like, I just didn't, it never registered. Yeah. That's, and I just got an email yesterday from a, a school in Livonia, Michigan. Mm -hmm. They have career day coming up. And this lady went online, and she's looking for a comic to talk to because one of her third-grade students wants to become a comedian mm -hmm. when they get older. So she just wanted the permission for that little third-year-old, third-grade girl to write me a letter and ask me some questions. <laughs> and I'm like, this girl's got it made already. If she's got this much of a jump on it, yes, that she thinks this is a job. That's that's before she's way ahead of her time. Oh yeah, I got out of college. I actually went to my first couple open mics, and then we realized these guys were doing it and making money outside of the area. Like, yeah, it just never registered. Like, and then when I finally saw guys that, you know, I started in Columbus, Ohio, and some of those guys had been on some TV things, and they were working out their new material at the open mics. They are like, yeah, there's, there's just clubs, man. You get in with this club, and they'll put you in with the other six clubs that they book, and pretty soon you can just stop your day job. And, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I was busting tables at a Ruby Tuesdays. Excellent. And uh, going, <laughs> going to school in the daytime, working at Ruby Tuesdays and a Red Lobster uh, right. on the evenings, and then all of a sudden... Uh, uh, Ron Denunzio at the Punchline called me up and said, uh, hey, uh, would you like to work uh, a couple clubs this year? And I went, yes. So you've been open mic in there or MC? Just, just open mic. Uh -huh. I did it for three years. And all of a sudden he called me up and said, uh, uh, I'll let you MC all of the Punchlines. And at the time they had like eight clubs. And I said, okay, uh, how much? Uh -huh. Without being too bold, right, how much right. am I going to make? And they said, uh, about 300 and I was making 250 every two weeks bussing tables so at a real like, Sign me up. And I was like, ah, this is done. Why yeah. am I going to college? <laughs> you know what's cool about that story? Is it's pretty rare for anybody to call you up and ask you to work for them. Yes. Yeah. I want every comic or aspiring comic listening to know that this is very rare. Very rare. You can't just do a few open mics and they're going to start calling. It's You're going to do a lot of legwork well, to get I, your gig. But this is a great story because you, you had built a relationship with the, the local club. Right. And they had that chain kind of going at the time, I guess. Yeah, and they were they just had spots to fill, and it was during the boom. So, uh, believe it or not, there were more jobs than there were comics. That's what I hear. I got in after that, and I I heard stories where you would go into a booking agency and they'd have a calendar on the wall with the name of the club, and you would just pick the week you wanted and write your name on it. Absolutely, and make sure you had a copy of it on the way out, and you were booking yourself for a year. I could go into a club and say, "Hey, can I do a guest set? Just go any day of the week. Can I do a guest set?" Go in, rock it for five minutes, get off stage, and they'd have their calendar open. That's awesome. So all you say, hey, where are you going? Uh, I don't have it. I'm not booked this week, so I'm going to go get some work. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a hu- lot of hustle out there, and I, I don't know how much changes with booking agents looking at clips online before they book you now, as opposed to doing that showcase. But I think you still got to make that effort to get inside their club. Yes, see how your act works in there, and you got to have that face to face at some point. Well, I think what uh, I think the one thing that I learned long ago, uh, and it took me it took me a while to figure this out, but uh, you call somebody fifteen times and they don't call you back, it's easy to think that, to take that personally. But uh, you have to realize that maybe they're just incompetent. <laughs> maybe they're just busy. Maybe they just have an ocean wave of comics calling them every right. single day, and they just can't get around to calling you back. Right. But it ta- but it's not. Uh, don't think they hate you, or that they don't think you're funny. Because if they didn't think they're, they're funny, they'd say, "Hey, don't call us back." Right. They just don't know you a lot right. of times. I mean, that's the thing. I. I remember sitting in the offices in Nashville one time, just in about a half hour, probably 23 calls came through right. for Brian, people, comics trying to get work. Right. And he, he's like, he's kind of nodded, looked at the phone like, I was like, I never, it dawned on me how many people are calling oh, on yeah. stuff. And yeah. So there's, you can't expect a, a person who's running a business full time, and, and most likely if somebody's running a club, they're running other things as well. They might have multiple clubs that they're booked right. in. So they've got all that going on. They've got comics on the roster they already know that have mm-hmm. done the job. And one thing he told me was, uh, for a new comic to get on my stage, they need to tell me who they're funnier than, basically. Like, who am I going to take off my stage to make a spot for you? Right, right. And if you look at it in that sense, yeah, that's, it's, they've got the relationship. They already know the guy does the job. They know how his act is, so he can match him up with other comics. He's professional. He, he shows up on time. He gets here. Man, let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> I don't think I've talked about that in that podcast enough. Being a pro... And being a business person and approaching it with respect for the other person on the other end of the phone. Yes. Especially when you don't know. Um, that first point of contact, that lasting impression, mm-hmm. it sticks around forever. Absolutely. I remember um, one of the first times I played it in Nashville. Um, I think Brian, who was booking the Vernon Hills Club, got me into the Nashville Club. Mm-hmm. And I did my week there. and It went okay. And I got some other work there. And I, kept, I was able to come back. And then it was like three or four years before Lenny Sisselman, who had the club at the time he saw me at a different event and uh, there was a few comics on the event it was like a radio station they called it Fat Fest or one of these uh, Rick and Bubba down in yeah. Birmingham so it was a, a big stage and a big audience an amphitheater and I got done I saw him he's like oh so when did you get funny <laughs> and I thought first I thought well that's a nice thing that he thinks I'm funny now but then I thought he booked me even though he maybe didn't think I was funny because I was probably professional enough to do the job right and I didn't create headaches and I've made the club. I left it at least as nice as when I got there. Yes. You know, but a lot of comics don't think about that. They think of the the stage as the place that they're going to rip up. I'm going to tear it up. I'm going to get booked here. And none of that is positive language, right? Right. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to do a good job. I'm going to come back and be professional. So were there any gigs that you had early on where you thought uh, maybe you got in a Beyond what you're ready for, but you you know you got in because you're being more professional than the guys you're going up against. Uh, well, uh, funny business. All of the funny business clubs. You know, I when I started out, they, people were still sending sending out VHS tapes, mm-hmm. and uh, I for a short time I booked a uh, a one nighter or like a weekend uh, club in Atlanta, and I remember soon as they found out that I was booking it, I was receiving bags of mail. Wow. Like overnight. And most of it, 90% of it was just so bad. Jugglers, plate spinners, magicians. And I was going, it's a comedy club. And it just, more and more crap started coming. And uh, as I watched them, I realized how bad they were. 
the sound was awful, the picture was awful. So uh, I actually spent the time and effort to get a really nice tape where you could see me and you could hear me. And, and you know, comics want the, you know, I want to hear the audience. I want them to know that they're laughing. These are club owners. They've seen a thousand tapes. They don't care. So they just want to hear, hear you. So pretty much I made a one where they could hear me and see me and sent it out. And I was an MC. I mean, I only had about, uh, really, I only had about uh, 15, 20 minutes. And when I sent it out, they were like, uh, oh, you're perfect. We've been looking for a feature like you. And you were like, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they booked me for three months, gave me three months of work, and uh, I had to buy a car to, 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 get, to, up, to get up to Michigan wow. and start doing the gigs. That's pretty cool. So, um, And did you pay for somebody to come out and videotape that? or did you? Yes, yeah. I paid somebody to come out and videotape it. I paid, you know, there were so many people just getting their own headshots taken by their wife. Right. You know, but I got a professional photographer, got, and that's the thing. It's like get a great picture because p- your headshot lasts forever, and it will show up twenty years later. Absolutely, somebody will post a throwback Thursday you weren't expected, and there's your head. Yeah, yeah. What? Or you walk in a room and you go, I walked into Knoxville. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, oh, yeah. I know. I've, 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 there's one particular headshot, my first one, where I, I would buy them back if anybody sees me in a Gilligan hat, the t-shirt <laughs> sitting up against a brick wall smoking a cigarette. Five bucks a piece. I'll yes. buy them back. They aren't, but I, had, I paid a guy to do it. It looked good, you know? Yeah. So there, there's little investments you want to make in yourself early on. You don't want to go overboard. But it's some, And nowadays, it's a completely different game. I mean, it probably costs, I don't know, how, five or six hundred bucks for somebody to come out and video yeah. you back then. Yeah. On a VHS tape. That was yeah. a master that you had to dub off. Yes. So, I mean, that ball game has changed completely, and you can get a lot better. But, but spending some time on the headshots, uh, yeah. basically, you want to look as professional as the gig you're going at. Absolutely. Absolutely. There should be no drop off when they put your picture up after they take the other guy down. It should look just as professional. Yeah. And if you're not there yet, that's one thing you can do early on to, to help yourself along a little yeah. bit. And then, you know, uh, when it came to those tapes, I remember, you know, uh, one of the things you learn is that if you listen to other open micers, you will hear the worst advice in the world. Right. People will constantly, you need to do this. Oh, well, are you doing it? It's right. working for you? No. <laughs> it's just yep. something you heard or something you thought about. So you kept getting this bad advice and bad advice. And one guy told me, he says, hey, man, you're a professional comedian. you got to have your own mic. And I went out and bought a mic. <laughs> yep. That thing is still sitting in a box 30 years That's later. Hilarious. Uh, you want to be a professional comic? You got to have this. You got to have your own mic stand. I drove around with my own mic stand for years. Oh, I used right. it twice That's in my hilarious. entire career. Yeah. So, uh, Does it hurt to have it? You don't need it. You don't need it. But I found it, you know, bringing the right things. Uh, uh, th- that one thing of the VHS, of, of hearing me, hearing your voice, mm-hmm. seeing you, no static, just hearing you and seeing you. Don't worry about taping the crowd. I want to get the audience in on the video. Yeah, I, I think they've seen people laughing before. Yeah. They just need to see me and hear me. I'll tell you one thing, too. I just thought of it. We were talking about this, and um, you can do it with, with DVD, DVDs as well. But turn the sound down on your set and fast forward it. Yeah. And just watch your body movement. And you'll isolate within 30 seconds a nervous tick that you're doing on stage. You're yes. scratching the back of your ear or you're, you're tugging on your shirt. You're putting your fingers in your pocket or something. Yes. It's hard to notice if you're just watching it at regular speed. But to speed it up, man, it just it looks like you're doing something crazy. It looks <laughs> like a vaudeville, you know, slapstick thing. But I remember doing that one time. I was rewinding the, in the VHSs back in the day. Yeah. Uh, before I sent them off, and I, I kept noticing I was scratching the, my nose for no reason. Yes. And so I stopped doing that in my show, 
and then a couple weeks later, I watched a different tape, and I was doing something different. There's like always one little thing yes. that's distracting. So don't don't let that drive you crazy, but realize you can watch your videos with the sound off and learn a few things yeah. and pick it up along. Well, I, 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 when I did my first uh, when I first did something for Comedy Central, it was mm-hmm. Premium Blend. And I did Premium Blend, and right after I did it, I thought, all right, that's the best set I've ever done. I loved it. It was great. I watched it like 15 different times and just sat there watching it on the video, loving it. And uh, like three weeks later, I got a call from Comedy Central, and they wanted me to do my own half hour. And I was like, yes, this is perfect. Everything's going as long as planned. And this woman uh, said, I want you to come in my office first. And she played the Premium Blend, and she goes, do you know how many times you say, you know? Oh, man. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And they played it, and I said, you know, about 15 times. And a seven-minute set? Yeah. You know, and you take this thing, you know, you know what I mean? When I, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know, you know, you know? And it just drove, I was right. How have I been doing this for 15 years and not noticed that? Right. Well, you know what I think part of that is? We all start as MCs, and you're trying to get the audience to buy into your material. Yes. Especially when you're new. Yeah. And I call it asking permission to be funny. And so we, how many parents do we have in the crowd? Yes. How many golfers do we How many smokers? Yes. They're all there. Yes. What are you going to do if they if nobody responds? Not do the joke? You're going to do it anyway because you're, you're new, right? Right. You don't need permission. The, the laughter will let you know you're on the right track. Yeah. But just like saying you know, you're saying basically, right? <laughs> I'm right, so I can do this again? Are you gonna, and you sh- hopefully at some point you grow out of that, you know? You know, <laughs> yeah. And, and here's the thing: you're, uh, one of the things I notice in young comics is you you're asking a question. Why are you asking a question? Right. Make the statement. Yeah. And follow it up with something funny. Because if, when you when you ask a question, you don't know what you're going to get back. Right. Like how many times have you seen this? Uh, who's celebrating something? Yeah, I just punched my girlfriend. Right. What do you respond to that? Yeah, nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. Nowhere Who, to go. Who's celebrating something? Uh, girl I slept with last week just got an abortion. Where do you go from there? There's nowhere to go. You're asking somebody to screw up your act. You're yeah. asking somebody to just throw a grenade in. It's your like act. it's like you're a relay team, and all of a sudden you let some guy off the street run the anchor <laughs> leg for you. Yes. Hey, you wearing tennis shoes? You probably can handle this. And you just yeah. you missed out on the world record because you just gave it away. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Um, I like having fun on stage, and I like incorporating the crowd in pieces. And I, I noticed last night you do that great, especially in the opening bit. You know, you know, it, it dials the, it takes the three hundred people or whatever down to one couple or yes. one person. And I always try to explain to new comics that's really your goal when you first start as an MC is to unite a bunch of disoriented people, yes, different tables, and make them one. And that's, if you only do that, that's all you need to do. Yes, and clubs will hire you over and over to do that one job. Because you're not, if you're not, you're not setting the stage up for the next comic. Absolutely. You know, so if you're trying to be bold and edgy, and you're dropping f bombs, whatever, to show how clever and brilliant your material is. Realistically, you're alienating parts of the crowd, and they're going to be tuned out for the for part of your set, and the, the next comic will have to reset it for you. Right. So right. it's all about knowing the different parts of the thing, and MC is a, such a skill. You know. It, yeah, it's it's the most important part of the show by it's, far for some people, and yeah. and honestly. We talked earlier. Some comics, their act doesn't lend themselves to that. They're quirky, yes. or they're not interactive, or they don't. Even, I mean, make eye contact with crowds. There's people that will never be great MCs, and there's, yeah. there's a handful of those. Yeah. But don't make that your goal to to not be 
able to MC, so they have to bump you to feature. <laughs> you want to earn some money at some point so you can do this to get to that feature spot. Well, yeah. Uh, at the time when I started, and I've noticed this is gone. This whole idea has gone away. Of you want to be the best open micer in your area, the best open micer before you MC, and you want to be the best MC before you feature. In your area before you move on. To right, that. and did you, but you want to be the best because that because uh, asking. Hey, can I feature? Asking a feature before you're ready will just make you an MC the rest of your career right. for for that club in that area. Yeah, you know, you want to be overqualified for every level, and you want them to ask you. Yes. Yeah, I learned that. Uh, I probably asked a few people here and there as I moved up, and somebody told me, "Hey, man, just do it. They'll ask you when they're ready. Yeah, and you won't have to beg for it. It'll feel better when you get it, and you'll be more ready for it when it gets there. Right. And that's the whole thing too about being over ready." For all your opportunities, yes, and we're always going to walk into something where it's not the right setup, or they didn't think like you were talking last night. Somebody hired you to do a Martin Luther King Day speech, and they thought they were getting a speaker. Yeah, but you were you were prepared to go in there and do your comedy. Yes, and you learned that on the ride over from what the airport to yeah the, from the airport to the venue. So, well, you know what he said? He said that as soon as he said, "It's a pleasure meeting you, Mr. Ramey," and I, I went, "Something's hmm. up, <laughs> something's up, Mr. Ramey." Yeah. <laughs> It's a grown man just called me Mr. Ramey twice. Something's wrong. Something's going down. You know, uh, what's going on tonight? How's the show? He says, well, uh, we're going to have a priest, and then this, and a preacher's going to, and the choir's going to sing, and then you're going to get up and speak. And I went, speak? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's explain this better. So I didn't finish the end of that story last night. How did you wrap it up? Were you able just to kind of mix your humor? And did you talk out some of your stuff? Like, I mean, uh, incorporate the theme of dream your dream or <laughs> well my my goal is and what I've always talked about is when uh, you're in a situation like that the best thing to do is to state the obvious uh-huh. and I explained to them and it was a funny story of me getting to the air getting off the plane and him saying Mr. Ramey and me reading and that I'm a comic and that they, he made a mistake and someone had made a mistake uh, that I'm going to give you comedy from here on out uh, no and then I and then I slowed it down and explained that I'm from Atlanta and how important Dr. King was to me and, and growing up and this and that now let's go to some laughs. Gotcha. Boom. Straight on to the laughs. Well, that's a good point. I mean, owning it, there's times where you, if it's a small thing, you can kind of don't celebrate the mistake and move past it. But when yeah. it's that big of a deal where it alters your entire show. Own it. Time to talk about it. Yeah. Like a waitress drops a, a, a tray of drinks. You know, your instinct is to keep going. Right. You get, Half the crowd's noticed that. Everybody's noticed that. No one's paying attention to you anymore. You might as well stop and point out what's going on. Right. Yeah. It's funny. There's a lot. And so all the different environments and stages you can take comedy to, there's always going to be one thing you got to deal with. Yes. The clubs, it's the sound of cash register or the margarita machine or the person dropping the drinks. Yeah. Or the heckler, you know. Yes. If you're in the corporate environment, it's something completely. The stage is 40 feet away from the front row of the audience or whatever Uh it might be or the round tables. Uh, Cruise ship, the boat's rocking while you're up there. I mean, there's always something you got to deal with. I think it kind of makes it fun, though. Uh, it may, you know what? It makes it a constant learning experience. Yeah. You never, you never get to a point where you stop learning. Right. That's what I love too. Is that it's every day I'm learning more stuff, and it gets to a point though. I got to figure out. Okay, there's a million things I could do different or change. What's the one thing I'm going to work on this week? Yeah. Not trying to do it all at the same time because nothing right. gets done, and you won't notice any progress if you do more than one thing. True. So uh, as you've gone on, and you've been doing this for how long now? You said you started it back in 86-ish? Ooh, yeah, 86. <laughs> so I've been doing it about 30 years. Wow. I yeah. think that's impressive. Yeah. I'm right around the 20-year 
22-year mark or something like that myself. So as you move forward now, um, what are some things that keep you excited to, to keep on doing stand-up? Is it the new venue? or You travel to a lot of different countries. Is that one of the things that kind of keeps you going? Well, I had to. I was getting so uh, just just done with stand-up. And I realized, I, you know, I there's this idea when you're on stage and you're performing, especially when you go back to a club you've been to a, a dozen or so times. As you're doing the act, you're thinking to yourself, how many people have heard this joke before? How many people have gone online and watched me tell this joke and uh, or, or, or heard the earlier version of this joke? Or how many people have seen me before or saw me when I did it more high energy or this and that? So I wanted to play new audiences. And uh, so I, I moved to London. First, I went over a couple of months at a time, and uh, I enjoyed it, loved it, realized that if I wasn't spending a grand on a plane ticket every time I went over and actually spent some time, I could generate some cash and decided to stay for two years. How, man, that's a, that's a big... It's a big leap. It, it is a big leap, but uh, to walk into a, a room in Scotland where they only have three American comics performing there in a year. Yeah. And uh, they've never heard of you. They don't know you. They don't know. And you start at zero again. Feels so good. Just to start at zero. You don't know who I am. You don't know where I am. Right. I just show up. I'm a guy from Atlanta. Boom. Hit the stage and just earn your points again. Uh, and how? what kind of things did you feel different from those audiences, from American audiences? I mean, you're pretty funny, I think, fairly universal to where you work anywhere, but were there some things where you're like, well, they like longer stories better, or they like, uh, is there any stylistic things that you noticed? You start to realize that, uh, um, especially in the UK, just in the entire UK, their, their style is different. And I learned a lot, and there's some things that I, I'm sure I taught them. And the number one thing is timing. Uh, in the UK, you could spend a lot of time on setup and very little time on punchline. Uh, it's uh, they're all well, not all of them, but a lot of them are really great wordsmiths. You know, and you start to realize that how you word something, how you say something, uh, like you, have, you might have a joke you say fifty times. You change one word, all of a sudden it's ten times funnier. Right. Or you change a phrase, you switch a phrase a certain way. Sometimes you say something on stage and it's a mistake and the crowd explodes with laughter and you're going, what did I say? Yeah. How did, yes, that was a mistake. But I see what they found funny about that. Um, I noticed that uh, they're still in the 80s in a lot of sense. They, they still do puns. Uh, you don't see puns on U.S. No, stage. Not for very long. No. You don't see the comic doing puns. <laughs> uh, puns, wordplay, uh, you know, even uh, just uh, that whole thing where your whole body just shakes on certain words. Oh, or, really? Yeah. And you're just like, and then I told her the day with the thing in the day. Right. You go, whoa. <laughs> you see it and go, they don't do that in the States. And, wow. And you start to realize that in, in a lot of ways, uh, people are sheep. So uh, if if uh, I started in Atlanta and uh, I thought that every comic had a possum joke, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought every comic had a had a, had a redneck joke, a possum joke, right. a, uh, you know, a deer in the headlights joke, mm -hmm. some joke like that, and it's because all the comics I saw had that. Right. So I started writing my possum joke. I got to have a possum joke. Uh, 
you go there and you realize they all have their uh, location jokes. Right. I'm a northerner. I'm a southerner. Uh, they talk about cities. I, Essex is like this, and this place is like that. And if you're not from there, you realize that that means nothing. Yeah. That means nothing. It, it's almost the same as when New York comics who've been in New York too long all of a sudden get a gig in Arizona. Yeah. Start talking about subways. We don't have subways here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm paying rent at my apartment. We don't have apartments here. Right. <laughs> Everybody owns a house and drives a truck, and there's no parking. Nobody yeah. parallel parks here. Yeah, and plus, I mean, I could imagine all the different. I mean, did you find a few things in your act that even know what you were talking about? The word you used was oh, a little yeah. slangy here or whatever. Like, uh, the clapper. The clapper. I did a, made a something about the clapper, and they all just stared at me. And I go, "You don't have the clap." Okay, never mind. Move no, on. That's funny. There are just certain. Uh, uh, there are just certain things they don't think about. So, uh, there. Uh, everyone in the UK has, uh, you know, the way Northerners talk about Southerners is the way the UK talks about Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, they're this and they're that. And you start to realize they are saying it because everyone says it. Everyone. So we're arrogant and we, we go to countries and take their, their, their minerals and we enslave people. And then as soon as they finish that, I walk on stage and just say one thing and it would just debunk their entire act. I'd say, uh, so what do we do? We go to countries and take them over and take all their resources. Is that what we do? Wow. Somebody doesn't know English history. <laughs> yeah. And the whole crowd would laugh. And we're like, oh, yeah, right. we did that right. before anybody. That's right. crazy. And, man, you, I would imagine that your first year there, you're, you're, there's just some spots in your act where just there's that pothole that you, you didn't see. I and mean, eventually you would get rid of them. And, yeah. But then did you get to the point where you had any kind of – point of reference strong enough where you could mention the different towns or was that something that as an American you wouldn't even mention? You know, I uh, uh, I, I believe that if you go into uh, any restaurant and they say we have New York style pizza and you show up and it's got uh, cilantro and shrimp on it, that's not a New York pizza. Right. And you shouldn't say it's a New York pizza. If I say I'm a New York comic coming to London, I should be a New York comic and I should do I should give them a a, a good slice of what they would see if they came to my show in New York. Uh, You know, uh, I've done a couple of specials uh, for uh, Comedy Central, and one of them taught me a lot. Is we did a special in Cuba, and it was sixteen comics. I mean, Greg Giraldo in Cuba. In Cuba, we did. uh, I know sixteen Americans got into Cuba. (laughs) It was since JFK. Yeah, Guantanamo. We did the show at Guantanamo. Wow. And uh, captive audience. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But a lot of troops there. They're all ready to see the show. And uh, I've always believed, especially for television, know what you're going to do before you hit the stage. Know exactly what you're going to do. Exactly what you're going to say. Make sure you know exactly which order you're going to say it and get it down pat. And don't change a thing. Uh, Everybody was cocky. Everybody was having a great time. And all of a sudden, they're writing jokes right there. Hey, I'll write a joke about how hot it is here, or the tanks, or the, how dirty everything is, or this and that. And that stuff just died. Mm-hmm. Everyone that threw in, hey, I thought of this on the way over, it would just die. It would die because 
they're hot. Right. They, they, they know about the they heat. They don't want to be reminded about Right. It. They don't want to hear about here. They want to hear about there. They want to hear about the U.S. They want to hear about you uh, getting some girls drunk at a club. They want to hear about you getting in a fight with some guy right. in New York or in California or in L.A. or in Alabama. They don't want to hear about Guantanamo. Yeah, for one hour or whatever it is, they want to escape. They want to escape. They want to be another place. I and think, that taught me a lot, yeah. that moment. It's funny. And... and were you up later in that show? Did you see that that wasn't working? Did did you think of a couple of jokes too? I mean, I know you you well, want, you want to have your game plan, but did well, I thought of a couple of jokes, and I remember I said, Lewis, you know, we've thought about this is my number one rule: don't yeah. change a thing. Stick you, with you've it. got a set that kills. Do it. You know, uh, the last thing. Why would I do? You know, and I, I said this to young comics: is that why would you do a joke you've never done before on national television? Right. <laughs> That's the thing that stopped me. You know, you think of the joke and you go, "I could say this," and you go, "Wait a minute! I've never done this on stage. I've never said this on stage. I don't know how the punchline is going to do, and I have no segue to get out of it after I've done right. the joke." Lots of things to think about. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, in a different environment where it's not TV. Where there's less expectations, where where you have a longer time to rebound from those things. Yes, yes. Um, I think it's important, but I know there's that temptation all the time, especially at a new club, to do some kind of local joke, and you can work those in. Yeah. But TV is a whole different deal. You don't want to be throwing new stuff back. <laughs> you know? well, uh, it's like uh, if you go to a you go to some city you've never been to, and from the as you drive from the airport, you see some uh, large statue. It looks like a guy's choking another guy. Right. You get to the club. You think of a joke about it. You walk on stage. As soon as you start talking about, hey, so I passed this statue on the way here. And you hear it in the crowd. People going, oh. <laughs> every comic. Why does every comic do the same joke about the guy choking another guy? He's not choking him. Right. <laughs> oh, oh, I didn't. I didn't know that every comic that comes to this town has that joke. Yeah, and that's funny too. Cause I, I, I remember back in the day, you'd hit those same cities over and over, and you would see the guys you're working with. Like, ten different guys would have the same kind of joke. Yeah. About yeah, from the airport or from the exit. Yeah. <laughs> it was not bigger than that. Yeah. I love when I see a guy though take it to another level. I remember I went to see Jake Johansson in yeah. Nashville, and he's great. You know, he's yeah. a smart guy. And, and he had two local jokes. He this. I think it was the first time he was performing there. And he said, uh, so I went to get my luggage off of the carousel when I landed. And the guy goes, can I help you with your bag? He goes, which one will it be? He goes, mine will be the one that's not shaped like a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was great because I've been at that luggage carousel a million times. But I never thought about that. You know, I love jokes that I could have thought of, but I didn't. Right, right. And then we have the Parthenon, which is a, a scaled-down model of the, the original Parthenon. Yeah. And uh, so everybody knows about that, and sometimes they do jokes about it. But he said, I, I don't know if you guys realize this. I saw your Parthenon. That's pretty cool. But I was over in Greece, and they have an exact replica of Hank Williams' house over there. <laughs> yeah. And he found the, the second or third level of what people think about and right. that second third thing funny. Yeah. So there's a lot of things comics will see. I think that's just in the, the nature of it sometimes. Yeah. But, well, like I used to do the thing where uh, something would happen in the news, and every comic in the world would jump on it. Right on it. And uh, almost a month later, I'd come up with the perfect joke. But every time I would start the joke, you'd see club owners going, no, he's not going down that road. Oh, my God. Is is this a Lorena Bobbitt joke? Oh, oh, I can't believe he's got... Oh, it's not! Oh, oh, 
at the end it would turn into something else and go, that's a great joke. I didn't expect it to be great when it started. I go, I know, I that's that's me though. Yeah. I, I'm when it comes to topical humor, I'm always I always come up with the perfect joke months after that news word. Right, story after it's all filtered through and you finally find what angle's left. Yes, yes. What is my angle on this thing? Yeah, I saw uh, Robin Williams do uh, work on some Lorena Bobbitt joke a, a, a week after it happened. And he, w- he went from, uh, he described, he, everybody knew what happened. But he did the part of the penis. He did the part of the cops looking for the penis. He did the part of the knife. He did the part of the guy. He did. He covered every bit of right. that and did it in every way a comic could possibly have done that material. And he did an hour. So at the end of that hour, you know, people were like, "All right, already. Yes, we've done it. We okay. All right, we get it." And uh, I realized that's how he writes. Yeah. He covers every angle of an issue, and then the stuff that sticks out, the stuff that really uh, gets the laugh, that's what he does. And he, the rest of it is just editing, editing yeah, it all out. Boom, out. boom. Cut out the fat, and then you have a great long, you know. I used to love um, Richard Jenny. Yes. He was around. Remember the OJ trial? I mean, every comic had that five or twenty minute bit yes. about the OJ trial, and then he had his HBO special, and I see him starting this OJ bit, and I'm like, "You got to be kidding me!" Yeah. But it was completely different than all the other ones I'd seen. Yeah. He did a thing where he he actually take his suit jacket off and put it on the microphone stand to make it some one of the witnesses. Yeah. Or OJ, I can't remember, what it was, but, <laughs> but he was like bringing other characters on. Stage. <coughs> yes, yes. And I thought this is. I learned that little thing about everything around you could be part of your. Correct. You know, just to put the sports coat on the microphone, it was a person now. Yes. And the way he went about the whole thing, and it, it's really, you know, people talk about Seinfeld kind of looking at every angle and, and different guys, but the way Richard Denny used to do it, I mean, it was a 30-minute yeah. bit. I mean, it was amazing to watch, and these, the specials are out there. You can dial them up on YouTube and check out some stuff if you don't know who Richard Denny is, J-E-N-I. But I, I love it. I'm not the kind of guy that goes forever on something. Yeah. You know, so for me, actually, what happens is if I go really deep into something, with lots of different punchlines and angles, somehow I'll just turn that into a song. <laughs> and it's three and a half minutes. You know, yeah. the CD version is three and a half, and the live show is 90 seconds. Yeah. And I'll just take some, and that way it's in one big place and it all stands by itself. Yeah. You know, I notice when uh, that backfires on you is when you put it on a, on a CD or a DVD and it's a, you're looking at that going, wow, I got a uh, 50 second track called Murder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everything about murder, right? In fifty seconds, I nailed it. In fifty seconds, wow! All right, that's funny. It is, but that's funny. I never thought about that, but I know when I title my CDs, that there are some of those things. Like, <laughs> it's well, just, I'm just going to cover this whole big area with one big broad topic because it would be silly to have six different fifty-second things. Um, yeah, it's funny. Most of my stuff ends up being like a three and a half minute kind of thing. Yeah, somewhere in there, three to five. But it is funny. Like I never thought about that. That when you see it on the CD, and I think it's something else we can talk about right now that I haven't talked to anybody else about is visualizing your set, not just as words and not just watching the video of it. But have you ever done anything creatively to kind of like take your jokes and put them in a different form to see what they look like? Like for example, go ahead if you've got an idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have. Um, well, I've, 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 I do this every five years, uh, especially old material, old bits, or if I'm just doing my set. I will uh, change the cadence of it, uh, change the, um, uh, try to get, you know, uh, a lot of my stuff is visual, and I didn't realize that until I did a CD, and mm-hmm. so uh, I, I've realized i got to talk people through this, and, 
you know, I sometimes I just make myself stand perfectly still and do the act. You know, I don't walk the stage, and 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 that's taught me a lot. Because when you get to a place that has a little tiny stage, I'm perfect. Right. I can just stand right here and make everyone. I saw Marshall Warfield uh, years ago, standing ovation, every just destroyed, and she had cut all the fat out of her act, where it was just one line sentence was the uh, was was the setup. And the next word out of her mouth was the punchline. Wow. And it was just crushed. And it was just like sentence, punchline, sentence, punchline, sentence. And that's and she would get it to a point where after that cadence in people's minds, she would just say something that was just ridiculous. And people burst out laughing and you go, see, that's not, and then she'd say, you know, that's not funny. Right. And people were like, oh, my God, it's not. Yeah. But she just got him in that rhythm. <laughs> got him in that rhythm. And yeah. she would sometimes, and she would, sometimes the punchline was just her picking up her drink. She would say something that took three minutes, three seconds for you to get. Mm-hmm. And she'd say it, and everyone's waiting for the next thing. And she'd grab her drink and slowly take a sip. And while she's doing that, people go, why is she doing Oh, my God, that's another level to what she just said. That's yeah. funny. Oh, I love I like I, I like watching guys that get that rhythm going. Um, that Chris Rock, this first special, yes, in the camera's the DC, the one where the shiny suit, yes, the silver thing. yes. The way he worked the stage back and forth, and I really watched it. You know, cause I, I love him and I love comedy, but I, was, I I turned the sound down again on that guy. And when he delivered the punchline, he stopped all movement and almost did like a ta da, yes, and looked at the crowd, big eyes, and then he would kind of. He'd walk while he's setting up the tag, and then he hit the tag. Yes. But he, he rarely, if ever, walked while he actually delivered the punchline. Right. While right. you were laughing, he would he would prowl the stage and set up the next thing. Well, I, I've learned that if I if you change it up just every five years, take your whole act and just go, what if I did it monotone? Or what if I did it this way? Or what if I change up the cadence? Or what if I uh, 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 did it with a depressed attitude as far as, far as uh, instead of being happy? Or... Uh, a little condescending. Uh, just change it up a little bit, and you start to realize that uh, some of your jokes that it, that used to be a seven are really a ten. If you hit them with the right, if angle. you hit them with the right angle, delivery, and then you go, oh, I, maybe I should take my whole act or some of my act in this direction, mm-hmm. and that changes it up. But when you, uh, I've had people animate uh, some of my stand up, yeah, yeah. and if they animate it. Uh, and I watch it. I'm a little. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it, I I feel like uh, some. It's lost something. It's lost something as far as my uh, eyes mm-hmm. or some of my uh, facial expressions. And I go, Ugh, yeah. and then you you realize it's someone else's interpretation of the joke. And have you ever found something though in that that they did in the animation that you never thought of that you, you incorporate? Uh, like even just like a look or a gesture that they put in. Well, strangely enough, and uh, I hate to even bring this up, but <laughs> I had a bit that was stolen by a uh, famous comedian, and someone animated it and did it in the animated version. I just go, wow, you know, having him steal it has really taught me something. <laughs> I could have done. There was more there. There was more there. I could have done that better. Wow. Well, thank you. That's crazy. Have you ever done this? Uh, I haven't done it in a while. Back when I was just doing 10, 15, 20 minute sets, do your act backwards to find wow. new segues. And, and suddenly you can't call this back, but it creates a new callback opportunity because it's in a. 
Because realistically, anything you start off with should be strong enough to close with. Right. And your middle is going to be the middle part where you're working on new stuff or right. it's, you know, banter or whatever you put in that middle spot. But flip it around sometimes. You'll find new things to connect. Wow. I never even thought of that. And, and you won't rely on some things that you were relying on before because it's not there. Well, I, I did notice going to London and performing because, you know, not only did I do London, but I, I booked uh, gigs in South Africa and Ireland and Scotland. Uh, I even did some stuff up in China and, and went to Dubai. Uh, like when you go to Dubai and you realize that you have to cut out any drug reference or sexual reference. Right, and, right. Cultural uh, differences every time. And you start to realize that uh, uh, I did a show for um, uh, a group that dealt with uh, battered women. And they said, don't say anything violent in your act. And I went, oh, piece of cake, piece of cake. And uh, it's about two weeks before the gig, and I'm, I'm, I'm in New York. I decide, I'm going to go through my set on stage, little 15-minute spots at all these. Th- and I realized how many times I said, punch them in the face or kick them or yeah. stab them. Or, I was like, oh, my God, you, you get shot that doing something like, oh, I can't say shot. I can't do this. I can't. When you have those limitations... It uh, may seem like a bad thing, but it, in the end, it's a benefit. It creates a challenge. It does. It you does. Have to write something new or different. Uh, the, uh, the people always uh, joke about comics going to do cruise ships. Like, ah, oh, you're giving up. You're going to do cruise right. ships now. Uh, goodbye to your career. Right. But I did cruise ships in my twenties, and uh, it forced me to work clean. Yeah. And so when I got off of cruise ships and decided to move to New York, I was one of a handful of comics. I mean, when I say handful, I mean four mm-hmm. black comics in New York with over an hour of clean material. So when they came up to, you know, we got this gig and we need some clean comedy right. and uh, nah, 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 we like something a little different, boom, my name came up. Yeah, and that's about. I like. I don't try to overkill it in my classes about writing clean. Yeah, I kind of just. I'll, I'll be the example if they want to do what I do. That's cool. And if not, that's fine too. Just make sure it's a good joke either way. Yes, you know, make sure you write it right. But the opportunities that present themselves oh. for being clean, clean, they, clean will buy you a house. Yeah, clean will do a lot of things for you. Yeah, and it's amazing that I hear comics. This is the argument that I, I hate the most. Man, I want to use every crayon in the box. I want to be dirty if I need to. I want to be edgy. I want to be this. I want to talk about everything. Well, use the clean crayon. Yeah. That's the thing. You, Just write with white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you could, if you could do, if you can do it, do it all. Yeah. But an hour of clean material will put your kids through college. Absolutely. A an hour of dirty material, man, they'll buy you a new pair of shoes. Every it's year. supply and demand. Yeah. I mean, like you said, there's only four or five guys in New York that could do that particular thing they were looking for. Right. And you're ready for it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. The cruise ship prepared you in a nice way. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, for aspiring comics, there's sometimes comics are like, they, they diss out other niches like cruise ships or doing corporate or doing whatever. And they're shoveling snow off the roof of our hotel room. You might hear that. <laughs> Literally, we're in Grand Rapids and there's like 16 feet of snow piled up. So if you hear that, that's what it is. But... There's, it's great that there's all those different areas out there. Yes. Um, if you if you aren't dirty, you should be happy that some of us are tapping out of some of the places that you're performing and going somewhere else. Yeah. But realize that there's a million people that can do dirty material. Your Uncle Chuck can do a dirty joke. Yeah. He can probably get on stage for five minutes and tell jokes he heard in the Marines or whatever. Yeah. 
but challenge yourself to at least come up with a 15, 20 minute set that's clean so you have some opportunities to open up some shows at the theater. Right. Uh, so a lot of times I'll go to the club and ask for the guy that can do 20 to open up for Brian Regan or you know those kinds of guys. Absolutely. Town. And if, but the tricky thing is, um, well, what I what I think I've learned is just having the reputation as doing one thing well is even better than me. I'm the guy that can be dirty or clean. Right. Well, then the people that hire me to be clean are, are wondering if I'm going to accidentally do the dirty joke. Yes. Or whatever. So your reputation takes time. Don't worry about it when you start open micing. But when you move into a club, you got to realize that that first impression goes a long way. Yeah. But also realize that, man, having some options yeah. are great. And when you work cleanest, you can still work where the dirty comics work. If you're funny, you're yeah. funny. But I, it's tougher to cross over the other way. Uh, what's uh, the, the President's Award for the Arts? I saw uh, Chappelle do a performance and it was for uh, I think it was for Lily Tomlin I think she'd won the uh, President's Award and uh, they were at Carnegie Hall and he said our next comedian Dave Chappelle and his first joke was about you know uh, you know they had uh, I'm probably not the comic you would expect to be performing mm-hmm. a clean show at Carnegie Hall and everyone giggled and then he killed it I mean absolutely killed it and was squeaky clean and that's you know I I tell people all the time, it's like, you cursing on stage is like, uh, uh, pretty much, that's uh, someone giving you the leg up as you slam dunk. (laughs) You know, know, it's, hey, uh, we're just going to make things a lot easier for you. It's the easy way out. You're not building muscle doing that. Uh, Trying to work clean and working clean and being funny and clean. Now... Everybody in the business, even comics, look at that and go, "Wow, that's hard." Right, and they respect it. I mean, I re- there's, there's definitely dirty guys that I respect. Yeah, I mean, uh, I get to work a lot with Robert Schimmel mm-hmm. at these different improvs because he he would request a clean opening actor or feature Absolutely. actor so that he would stand out more. Yeah, but man, his joke writing was amazing. Yeah, and and let me tell you, to be dirty is is one thing. To be dirty for an hour Oof. is even I think harder than maybe being clean for an hour. Yeah. in some ways because. The, it has to come back to well-written material either side of the, either side of the coin. Absolutely. And so that's no, just something to think about down the road. Don't want to put a lot on you guys when you first start out to, to overthink, but keep all your options open. Yeah. yeah. Even when I first started out, I knew I was going clean. If I had a joke that was kind of dirtier, I'd write it down in a different notebook. I had, had like a list of those things, and I had to give them to other comics or swap mm-hmm. with them. Like, hey, you would, this is a great joke for you. Yeah. Is there anything that you've got that's too clean for you? And we'd swap, you know. Hey, you know, uh, I've, I've noticed this, especially when people start out in comedy. They want to be somebody. Like, they, there's a comic they want to be. They em- dial emulate. style. I want his style. I want to be just like that guy. But that's not how stand-up works. Stand-up is, is uh, essentially your personality on steroids. Now, if you spend every waking day cursing and <laughs> and you know doing whatever then that's, you, then, right? then that's you that's who you are but uh if that's not who you are then don't try to be that person you know that uh there's a reason why no one buys sugar-free ice cream right, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's fake yeah and people want the real and when you put something fake next to something real uh you know it's glaring how how people look at it people go oh my god that yeah, you're just nothing but crap. Everything you say is false. They yeah. know that right away. Once, I think more now than ever. Oh, yes. Um, I think kind of got, like guys like Carlin and Louis C.K., the, the authenticity and the rawness oh. of the honesty. Yes. 
Um, it may not be what every audience member is expecting, but I think all of them are appreciated. Yes. And, and you, can, you can delve into some topics that are pretty heavy if you have your authentic take on it, and they can't contest that. Yes. They can always contest how funny you were or whatever, but if you're authentic all the time, that's non-negotiable. Right. So they walk away. I always say there's, there's kind of like two guys I end up working with, yeah. when I, especially when I did the clubs all the time, and I had comics that I worked with. Yeah. Um, the comic who people kind of came out, they bought a CD, and they, they said, hey, man, nice job. Then there were comics that they would hug. Yes. Because they felt like they got to know you while you were on stage. Yeah. And there was no BS. It was real stuff. Yeah. And stuff they, they could appreciate. And you made real stuff funny as opposed to trying to make funny stuff real. Yes. And that's, you know, once again, I don't want to say you can't do one thing or the other. But it's the comics that got hugged on the way out, yeah. they built a following. Yes. And the comics who just did a nice job did. Yes. More often than not. So don't be afraid to kind of let them know who you are. And, and especially down the road, you want to tap into that as much as you can. Yeah, I mean... That's the only thing that's going to separate you at, at some level from everybody else. Because at some point, you... I mean, at some point, you will be a comic where uh, you will deliver a line so unique that when other people hear it coming out of someone else's mouth, they say, wow, that sounds like... So-and-so. Bang. Yeah. That's that's the whole key, making yourself so identifiable. Yes. Um Nobody can do you like you. Right. You hear that all the time, but it's, it's so true. And you're going to be influenced early on about different comics and styles and delivery. And I mean, almost there's like a million headbird dudes out there. That oh, yeah. Copy that style and a tell guys. And there's always that next guy that everybody wants to be. But, but you do a Stephen Wright joke. Hey, I haven't seen Stephen Wright in 20 years. Right. <laughs> I hear that joke. I go, that's a Stephen Wright joke. Right. It's defined by the, his specific comic eye yeah. and the way he delivers yeah. that. Well, that's cool. I'm going to ask you uh, what I ask almost everybody. Is there, is there one thing now, 30 years later, yeah. that would have saved you a couple of years on the front end, whether it's a booking process or a way you approached clubs or the way you developed material that you wish you would have got in on a little bit earlier? Uh, you know, I would say the, the one thing is, uh, well, um, don't listen to people below you or on your level. Uh, you know, you if you want to get to the point where you're doing television, then try to talk to as many people who are doing television. Right. If you want to start headlining, talk to as many people as you can that headline. Uh, open micers sitting around talking to other open micers is just, uh, you know, um, a toilet swirling. <laughs> a circle of confusion yes. and, and third generation right. advice. And, got and bad advice and this and that. And just, you, you stop all of that and just you know put on blinders also that's another thing blinders stop looking at other comics and how they're doing and uh you know sometimes uh you know i always tell people uh show business works on a cycle and sometimes they uh they want the uh fat black loud uh abusive woman who's screaming into the mic and then sometimes they don't. Right. And that person has nowhere to go in this business. Sometimes they want the uh, older, smart, witty, uh, political humor. And then the next year, they don't. Right. It's on a cycle. So you need to be unique and wait for your turn on that cycle to come along. Because it does come along. You know, uh, Def Jam was huge at one point, And now uh, people don't even want Def Jam on their resume. 
They're like, mm, right. I don't want people to know I did that. I don't want people to know I did this this because it was hot at one point and now it's not. Right. And you can't change with the times. You need to just be unique, be yourself, and wait for that cycle to come back around. When I moved to New York, uh, the Cosby Show was on. And I got auditions for the Cosby Show and all these other different shows. And and uh, uh, I just moved there. I'd never acted before. And I was getting callbacks. And I was going, oh, this is, I can't imagine. This is going to be great. And I got a, a few spots on a few shows. And then like that, boom. You know, it was uh, everybody wanted to be, needed to have a be a gangster. Mm. Oh, we got to have a you got to be this hip hop guy who's selling crack in this alley, and that's all. The, on all these shows, start coming out with you know the wire and this and that, and right. I, and I was too clean cut for that. Now I could have changed. I could have put on some Tims and some and some baggy jeans right. and changed my act and try to be that. And BET was big at the time, and Def Jam was big at the time, and I could have changed my act and tried to be that. But I realized, you know, that's going to come around. That's going to come back around. And all of a sudden, that cycle's going to... And then all of a sudden, that's not the thing to be anymore. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, hipsters start taking up. The nerds are now... Nerds are king of the world right now. Nerds are king of the world. The guy with the uh, abs and all the muscles. Hey, we, we, got an, we, we don't like bullies anymore. Right. It's <laughs> true, man. It's so funny how it does come back around. And... So the two takeaways, really, you got to be patient and you be yourself. Uh, but the great payoff is you're going to be more ready when it does come back yes. around. Yeah. You don't want to spend. You don't want to work hard at doing, at trying to figure out and predict the next trend or move into it. Right. Because it's going to come and go, man. Just like your clothes, you got to stay in one spot, do your thing yeah. to the best, and eventually it'll come around. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Right. But you stay true to yourself, and you right. can live with that. Like who? Who would have guessed that uh, uh, Roseanne Barr? Now you're talking about a uh, overweight, loud, screaming comic. Now I'm sure that uh, can you imagine the people that that told her you should lose some weight, you should do this, all the advice she must have gotten. Right. Your act should be more like this. You should do more stuff like that. How many Lisa Lampanelli? How many people must have told her you need to change your act right. because what you're doing right now isn't working? And she just held on. Stick to, your Stick to her guns, and all of a sudden the clock ticks around, and they go, "Oh my God, you're the hottest thing out." Yeah, different makes it hot. Yes, yes. Different as long as you can connect. Yes, I gotta stress that because some people are so. When you first start, you're trying to be so wacky, or I, you still have to relate to the crowd. Yes, but in your way. So that's that's good stuff. Yeah. So where can people find you online? Yeah. Uh, LewisRamey.com. Uh, L O U I S L O U I S R A M E Y, uh, Ramy as in Do Ramy. There you go. Yeah, uh, you're on Twitter, but you check it maybe yeah, not. Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a twi- I'm not in the Twitterverse. Yeah, yeah. It's not. A, we're older guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can check out our ads in the back of the Farmer's Almanac. Yes. Uh, maybe in the yellow pages under performers. Yeah. Subheading comedy. Parenthood. If you got that magazine, I'm in the back. Yeah. There you go. Ahead. Well, awesome. I look forward to seeing the ah, show again tonight. Absolutely. We'll be ready here in a minute. Ah, yes. 
Well, there you go, Lewis Ramey, very funny guy. Hope you picked up a few tidbits and some insight from his point of view being in the business for several decades now. Lewis is uh, just a great guy and a funny guy. I'm sure you heard that through the interview, but check him out if he's anywhere near you performing. Again, if you're in the Columbus, Indiana area on April 9th or 10th, stop out to see me at the Simmons Winery. Uh, you can check out my website, rickroberts.com. For more information, just go to my blog post and you'll see the banner there. Hope to see you out. I'll talk to you guys next week. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaps.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.